to uh, James. James chapter 2. We're in a series here through the book of James, and we're slowing down for this one section on partiality. We talked about uh, last week, uh, talked very briefly, and saw a clip of um, six pastors from the Central District, uh, part of the Christian, our church is part of the Christian Missionary Alliance, and it's broken up into districts, and we're in the Central District, uh, which is Eastern Ohio, and then all of West Virginia. And uh, six uh, African-American pastors up in Cleveland uh, did a roundtable panel discussion, whatever you want to call it, at our district conference, and we played that this past week. And um, I had uh, some interesting uh, questions. Some people at the end were just saying, well, what do you do after you see something like that? And... um, which uh, it, it is. I, I forgot the feeling. That's exactly what I felt, you know, at the end of that panel discussion. They did a better job landing that plane because they had more time. Um, but uh, one of the first things they said is, "Don't go up to a, an African American and tell them you know an African American." <laughs> they said, "Don't tell them you know somebody that's." They said that was a joke. Sorry, it was it was funny in the context. Maybe not funny now, but uh, so. You know, it, it's uh, one of those things. We live in a culture and in a world where um, like attracts like. And it's all white here. It's all African-American there in the inner city and, and in most churches. That's often how it plays and what happens when you live in contexts like that. And uh, I think what God would have us do is love each person who comes our way. Um, and be open to whoever he brings to us, be open to move wherever he would move us. Um, it is what it is in some ways, and yet if it's more about our heart and our openness to it, and being uh, those reconcilers, willing to have that conversation and to go there. Um, James talks about this idea um, of partiality and uh, you know, as we think about churches and what we want to do, part of it is, you know, maybe what does it look like for you to get exposure and to understand and walk in someone else's shoes? And whether that is the African-American or whether that is some other context that is a race different than yours, a nationality different than yours, a economic experience different than yours, I, I don't know. Maybe that's something to do. We're, we're talking about how do we partner with one of these churches up there in particular and, um, and, and seeing what that looks like where we're exchanging pulpits and we're going up there for church and they're coming down here for church and how does that all work? And we don't know these things. We're trying to move slowly and to make sure we do this right. But uh, it's a great question. What does it look like? What practical things? Um, I, I don't know if we know all the answers to those questions. The Holy Spirit does. Um, so I, I, I don't know if that's a great answer, but those are the things uh, that come to mind. And uh, James writes this. He says, show no partiality. He comes right out and says it. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, show no partiality. 
For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, yeah, you, you sit over there or sit down at my feet, which is where the dogs sit. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and, some, and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you? Aren't they the ones who drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? James comes out and he says it so clearly. Don't show partiality. Don't show favoritism. Don't discriminate. All those words you could use interchangeably. Don't play that game. Don't treat one person one way and treat another person another way. He says it out, and what's nice about that is he just says, hey, look, this is what we're going to talk about. says it before he talks about it, and then he goes on to talk about it. But he says, don't show partiality. And then he goes on to say, and he actually appeals to this thing right here, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. You may not know this, but James, uh, many scholars would say, is the first letter that was written uh, to the New Testament church, the first one. He's the brother of Jesus. And what's fascinating about the opening statement here in chapter 2 is the Christology. There's a big fancy word. It's literally the study, the knowledge of Christ, right? He says, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of glory. The Christology, the understanding of Jesus in the early church was that Jesus wasn't just a man. Jesus wasn't just a prophet. Jesus was the Lord of glory. God himself. It's a word he uses here, lordship. In the Hebrew, they would understand it as Yahweh. He was Lord. He was God. And God doesn't ever share his glory. He's not going to share it with anybody. It's his. And for Jesus to have the glory means Jesus is God, not an expression of God, not a godly, fully God. Now, why does he write this at the beginning? We'll understand it as we go through it. He goes on to say and describe this scene where there's partiality shown and a, a rich man coming in with gold ring and fine clothing and a poor man coming in with shabby clothing and, and paying attention to one who wears a fine clothing and giving them the right place and, and giving the poor man the, the bad place. And... One of the things you have to understand about Roman culture is um, there was really four orders, social orders, in the kingdom of Rome at that time. And it had been that way for a long time. There was the, sen the senatorial, or however you want to say that, there was the senate order, which was the highest social order in the kingdom. You had to pay at least, in our, in our equivalent, it would be about $5 million 
or $10 million to get into that. And that was just the starting fee. That represented in the population of Rome one-tenth of one percent of the population. There was a senate, and then right underneath the senate, there was this other word that they had, the equester. That cost you $2 million to get in. And that was just the starting fee, out of your own pocket. And, and those, the, the senate typically was by birth, because most of the wealth in that day wasn't in cash, it was in land. And so they would just pass it on, generation after generation after generation. And the Senate often was genealogy rather than anything else. The equester was based on wealth, but it was also the merchant, the bankers, uh, the investor stratus uh, of the kingdom. Those two orders put together was a bit more than one-tenth of one percent of the population, but not much. In our day and time, it would be four-tenths of a percent of the population would have the money and the means to do this. And yet they would control all the power, and they would control all the commerce, and they would own all the land. Four-tenths of one percent of the population. The third stratus was the local elite, and that still had everything to do with who owned the land, because where the money was was in agriculture. And if you were able to produce crops, you were able to produce money. And so it was the local elite, and how did you get land? Well, because mom and dad had land, and because grandma and grandpa had land, and it just kept getting passed. And so you would see literally centuries of the same people in the elite and nobody else getting in. And the other part of this was there was no rags-to-riches story in the kingdom of Rome. They weren't about that. When you were in your caste system, you were there for life. Don't even think about trying to get out of it. And they guarded it jealously. Everybody else fell on this fourth one, which was poor. And they created their own system and status symbols, which is ironic. Age, gender, wealth, citizenship, military, career, occupation, your home address. Were you in the city or were you rural? It's so interesting that at every social order level, people were creating status symbols and markers that let them, everybody else know and them know they were in and everybody was out. Even the poorest of the poor did it. Everybody did it. Which leads me to this question, what is it inside of us that does that? Why in the world do we show partiality? Why do we show favoritism? I mean, what, what is that inside of us where we do, and we still do it today? You ever thought about what's inside of you? Or what's inside of me? that causes that? What are some of the things? Off the top of your head, just uh, shout them out. What are some of the reasons why we show partiality, favoritism? Pride. Pride. In what way? What do you mean? Sorry, I got to do a follow-up. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm better than you. I want to be 
seen or perceived as better than somebody else, right? Okay. Yeah, sure. That's good. Yeah. Right there, bro. I got you. Envy. In the sense of, I want what they want. So, hold on, go ahead, explain it. The grass is always greener, isn't it? And so you create these partiality. You want that. You'll, you'll, you'll go for that, even though you already have this. And so you'll actually try to court favor, right? Court someone else who has what that. Bring them in so you get it. Is that? Sure. Right. Somebody else said what? Being noticed. Right. You want somebody to pay attention to what you got or who you are, right? I'm worth something. Any other thoughts? Similarity. What? Similarity. Similarity in what sense? Yeah. Everybody wants to, what is the song from Cheers, right? I mean, it's kind of like, I want to belong, right? I want to belong with something. And so you want to find a group of people that, hey, we speak the same language. We speak the same whatever. It's fascinating to watch junior hires Figure that out. It's fascinating to watch what happens when you go off to college. Who am I going to belong to? Who am I going to be? And you see quickly groups form and who's in and who's out and who's not. And, and sometimes it's really healthy and sometimes it's just messed up. And then you get to adulthood, right? It happens at work. Anybody ever see favoritism happen at work? <coughs> Never happens. Boss never likes somebody else more than another one, right? That never happens. There's no favorites. Identity. In what sense? I mean, I could run on that. Yeah, finding identity. Yeah. Finding identity in money, in status, power. And so you'll create social places or you'll pursue social places that affirms that, that gives you that. Control, sure. It's really easy. You start, to, you start to talk about these things. You start to realize, wow, there, there's all kinds of motives for what drives favoritism. It's all over the place. What's interesting is favoritism, partiality, preference is so arbitrary. Like, think about it. We play favorites about this color of somebody's skin. Or we play favorites about the nationality someone has. We play favorites about the state, and joking sometimes, but you ever been from West Virginia and been on the bad end of a joke? Right? You ever been from Barberton, who makes... You know, Wadsworth makes fun of Barberton. Barberton makes fun of Wadsworth. Rittman, right? There's jokes that go back and forth. Where do you live? Never heard it all. It wasn't until I got out here. I was so... I, I'm not even going to say it because it'll be bad. Um, 
it's so funny when you come into a new culture, you don't realize, you, you, you see all this stuff for what it is, and you're like, you can't say that. Like, that's so wrong. Every culture has it. And it's not just that other cultures have it. It's in the church. It's totally in the church. James, James says, look, he's writing to these churches, and, and this is what you guys are doing in the church. You're, you're bringing this wealthy guy in, and you're saying, oh, sit right here. And you're saying to the poor guy, ah, get over there. Like, get out of the way. And he goes, haven't you made right then distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James says, you want to know what favoritism does and this partiality does and this discrimination? It sets us up as judges. And for what reason do we have? Because somebody has more money? Like that's the basis of identity? Really? Is money? That's the basis of success? That's the basis of and so we put this stamp on people's souls and say, oh, you're worthy. You got so much going for you. And you, you're, you're nothing. In the church. Keep in mind that apparently or supposedly we're all here because we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord of glory, who, last time I checked, is the judge. And James is saying, you really want to put yourself in the place where you're the judge over somebody's worth? You kidding me? It's evil. And we're going to get high and mighty in front of the Lord God Almighty and tell people, you belong and you don't, and you have something to offer, but you don't. And, and this is Jesus, right? The one who set aside his glory. The one Isaiah said he wasn't really that attractive. That's, that's kind of a summary, my, my summary of that thing. Wasn't nothing to look at. Philippians said he became a servant. He's washing people's feet for crying out loud. Nobody, nobody even looks at him and thinks, oh, that's God. And yet, here we are as a church. When we see the stories and read the stories about Jesus, we're like, how could they be so clueless? Now get out of my way. Right? Quit bothering me. Quit coming to me. Get out of my group. Please don't sign up for my small group. Right? Small groups are so messy sometimes. It totally just gets in the way of all of our preferences. Right? I've been in them. I've had people not want me there. More my own fault. <laughs> Jesus, born in a barn, never owned a home, always dependent on others. You know, if Christ played according to the rules of this world and, and how we do favoritism, you and I would not have a relationship with him right now because we don't deserve one. 
We're the ones who are poor. We got nothing. Which makes it all the more incomprehensible that we as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Lord of all glory, would ever look down on someone. As one guy said, how could we do that? How could we ever, when we're looking up at Christ, look down on someone? Because when you're looking up, you realize, oh, I'm at the bottom. He goes on and he says in verse 5, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? You know, what's interesting about this verse is it feels like God's playing favorites. Like God's chosen the poor, and they're the only ones to get to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Like they got the inside track, and and we've got to slow down here a little bit because James in this moment, and and I was struggling with this all week long. I'm like, why wouldn't verse 5 come to me? Verse 5 was just, I kept like, "Ah, I don't know what to do with that. I don't know what to do. That kept kicking it, kicking it down the week, down. And I just couldn't figure it out. And then I realized, I know why. It's because he, he throws in a loaded word that is this, this is huge roadblock. To how do you even go forward? It's the word chose. God chose. It's a big word. Because what it's saying is this whole thing thing of God chose before they were born. That's why I couldn't go any further. I was like, oh, that's what's going on. This is all about predestination and free will. What a mess. Now, if, if you want to, let me, let me try to unpack this a little bit. It says, God chose, and it's the idea that God has sovereign power, the sovereign power to choose whomever he will to be saved. And the Bible teaches us that every believer was predestined. Romans, Romans 8 talks about that. Romans 9, I mean, it's all about God's, was God predestined us. He had the sovereign will to choose who would believe in him. That's the word chose, and that's what it means. So God chose the poor before the poor were ever poor. Now, what the New Testament teaches, though, about salvation and that it's not by merits or by our own works. So God is consistent on this and insistent on this. So God didn't choose them because they were poor any more than he chose people because they were rich, like as in that was a qualification for why they were chose. It's not about that. There's no other reason he chose anybody other than his grace. That's the only reason. God said in Romans 9, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on human will or tradition or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now, some of you out there who are Calvinists and, and you're thinking, oh, yeah, um, and, and, and Arminius, and if you're wondering, like, what's a Calvinist? Like, I don't even know that's a word. Don't worry about it. Calvin and Arminius were two dead 
our two dead theologians lived a long time ago who wrote way too much about this. Um, and, and, and as if we didn't have enough things to be impartial about, we now have a whole new way to do that. Um, and so if some of you are out there thinking, oh, Scott's a Calvinist, which is like a whole camp that's like all excited about God's sovereignty, and there's this camp of Arminian, and these are all excited about man's free will, and, and now you're thinking, oh, Scott's all over there. I, I am not in any box. Um, I'm not in either. I'm a big fan of free will when the Bible teaches about that. I'm a big fan of the sovereignty of God when, the, when, it's, when it teaches about that. I'm 100% both. I'm in the I don't know category of how this all works out. I'm in the box that says God's ways are not my ways. God's thoughts are not higher than our, our thoughts. And we're, we aren't going to figure this out until we get to heaven. That's my box. So they're both true. But James drops this bomb. He doesn't even explain it. And I don't even know why I am. So we're going to move on. <laughs> he just assumes everybody knows this. But he says, God chose the poor before they were ever born. And, and it's, it's who the world rejects and says, they don't have anything. They're not worth anything. And God says, oh, you want to see? You want to see? And he takes them. And he displays the riches of his wealth and kindness and grace. God has this thing about the poor. He just does. He has a heart for the poor over and over and over and over again. You don't, you don't see God saying, oh, my heart is for the rich. Oh, I love the rich. You don't see that in the word. You see over and over again how, how upset and hopping mad God gets when the poor are oppressed and taken advantage of. When Jesus opened the scrolls, his very first words were, good news to the... That was his opening line of his ministry. The first thing he ever wanted to say to this world was, I have good news for the poor. And you can't spiritualize this and make this into a metaphor of, oh, spiritual poor, just like that's, that includes everybody who's just understand. There's something about the economic poverty thing that's going on here. Yes, the other is true, but you can't, you can't talk this out of it. And what's interesting, here's the fascinating thing, is the church Israel has struggled with this. Israel always struggled with favoritism and, and, and really disregarding the poor. And the church has this cycle of history where we repeatedly do this over and over again. It's right here in the beginning of the early church. Now, you could say they didn't know any better, but I'm like, well, they're all, they're all Jews who, were, who, who then became Messianic Jews believing in Christ. So they already had the law. They already knew it. So you could argue that... They have no excuse. They knew. But if you watch church history, it's fascinating. Uh, take uh, John Wesley. John Wesley is this guy. He's part of a church. He's, he's excited for Jesus. He gets lit on fire. And he's like, wait a minute. We've got all these poor people. We've got all these broken people. We've got all this, you know, the, the miners and, and just the, the working class that had no money, just grinding it out, barely surviving. And he's like, somebody's got to reach them. And so he started to bring them to church, and guess what? The church said, don't bring them in here. They're, they're a mess. They're going to mess this all up. And they kicked them out. And so John Wesley started to preach in the coal mine pits. 
He'd preach wherever the poor people were, wherever the broken people were, and God used him literally to start this revival that swept through his country for the poor. And out of that was birthed what we would now know as two of the largest denominations in what you would say is the Western world, Methodism, or the Methodists and the Westlands. They came out of this movement. Fast forward maybe, I don't know, five decades, six decades, he's dead. New guy comes along, he's all fired up, and he's got this passion for the poor, and he's like, oh, we got to reach the poor. And, and he's like, and we got to reach all these people that are overwhelmed with alcohol and overwhelmed with everything, and where's the church in this? we got to bring them in. So he starts bringing them in, bringing them in to where? The Methodist church. And the Methodist church says, are you crazy? See, what God had done is God had transformed them, totally changed their lives, and the blessings that come with God is your family improves, your income improves over time, you're, you're possibly, and this is not a direct promise. This is what, let me be careful on that. Health and wealth. I just slipped over a line there. There's a blessing that comes. As righteousness comes, the, the proverb says it exalts a nation. That makes sense? So it exalts people, it lifts people up. That's about as far as I'll take that. Okay. So the church is all cleaned up, doing so much better. And guess what the Methodist church says? Not in my church. Get these people out of here. So the guy's like, well, forget you guys. I'm going to go to where Jesus is. He loves the poor. He loves the alcoholics. He loves the broken. He loves the people that are trying to make ends meet and don't know how to do it and don't know where to go. And that guy's name was John Booth. He's the guy that started the Salvation Army. Which is interesting because the Salvation Army has not wavered from that. The Christian Missionary Alliance started in the late 1800s by a Presbyterian pastor. Guess what? He had a passion for immigrants. He was in New York City and he saw all these people coming off who were lost, had the passion for the poor because there's a lot of poverty in the 1800s, as people were coming off and didn't know what to do or where to go. And he's like, we've got to reach these people. So he starts to bring them into the church, and the church says, are you crazy? You're going to mess this thing up. We're better than them. And he says, all right, I'm going to go to where Jesus is. And he goes out there, and he starts reaching the poor. Church explodes. He never wanted to start a denomination. He did that after he died. He just knew God's heart for the poor. And to think the church could somehow think there's no room or we're better. They don't fit in, they don't belong. You know, this whole immigration thing and refugee thing is a huge deal. Our denomination was started by a man who brought refugees through the front doors of the church. He brought in immigrants through the front door of the church, and that church kicked them out. I don't know where you fall out on this, and I don't even know all the answers to this. All I know is God's heart is for the poor. 
and his heart is for the refugee, and his heart is for the immigrant who has nothing. I was just up in um, Strongsville. I was at Chick-fil-A, and I'm talking to this guy, and I know he's, he's obviously from the Middle East, and I said, how long have you been here? He said, I've been here four months. I said, where are you from? Syria. I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, 400,000 people have been killed over there to date. You know, six million are refugees in that country. Six million. They're out of their country. 400, oh no, it's backwards. Four million are refugees, six million are displaced. That's all of Ohio. Imagine taking four million Ohioans and they're gone. And imagine six million that are still there are not living at home. They're trying to live where the conflict isn't. I asked him, what did you do for a living? Because what often happens is, you know, what they're doing now is not what they were doing then. He says, oh, I was a translator at the UN. And he's working fast food. I go, well, how many languages do you speak? Five. Okay, Mr. Underachiever here, I can speak one. Guys, I don't know what the answer is to all this stuff that's going on. I just read the Bible. And I just, we're no better than anybody else. We just aren't. We just have Jesus. That's all we got. And James says this. Keeps going. You've dishonored them. You've dishonored that poor man. And aren't the rich the ones who are oppressing you? Aren't they the ones who drag you into the court? Aren't they the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? See, it's not just discrimination or partiality or favoritism. You have dishonored him. You remember when Calvin said, you have made them less than. That's what favoritism does. You make someone less than. And he says, you guys are doing this, and you're, you're like currying the favor of the wealthy, but they're the ones treating you like garbage, like you're less than. And in that day and age, obviously with those social classes, the wealth had all the power, all the, the courts were always in their favor. They could just drag somebody off the street who owed them money or whatever, make them pay, throw them in jail. No compassion. No thought of trying to lift someone else up. Not only that, they're, they're blaspheming the honorable name. He just talked about Jesus, right? They're blaspheming his name. They're trashing his name. They mock God. They hate Jesus. And yet, you still think they're more than? Really? Isn't that often the case? You ever find yourself where you're like, why, why do I, 
why am I giving and playing favorites? Why do I want their approval? Why do I want to give them preference? And to the very people who, at the end of the day, are just, they hate God and they treat people horribly. You think about the highest social class in our country, the, the entertainers, the actors, the musicians. That's, that's really, in our, in our culture, that's the highest. We'll buy tickets to their games. We'll download their music. We'll wear what they wear, talk like they talk, and listen to them mock our faith, call Jesus any number of names, trash his name, pile on public shame because of who we believe. Oh, but we'll feel better about ourselves because we're wearing their stuff. And James says, are you kidding me? Like, really? It seems to me, as we think about favoritism, the only way to stop favoritism is looking up. It is the only way. And the longer we gaze up, the more we get used to looking up and then those around us, well, they're not looking, we're not looking down, we're, we're equal. At the foot of the cross, we're just equal. Folks, I, I, churches go in cycles. It plays out in history. I want our church, I think God's heart for our church is that we would always, we'd always be a place that has his heart. He says it's the poor, the economic poor here. He just That's what James is talking about. We would never stop having a heart for the poor and never be a place where that stuff matters. It just doesn't matter. I'm not saying we are sliding towards that. I see, I see incredible movements of love in this church. But let's be on our guard. Let me pray. Lord, I just, I thank you for choosing me. Thank you for choosing us. Who are we, Lord, that you uh, have thought of us? I pray that this place, this church, body believers, would be a place where you lift people up. You lift everyone up. And we do this together, Jesus. I pray you'd be honored by us, Lord, and where we're falling short, have mercy on us and show us so we can repent. I pray our church would be known as a place where anyone can come. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.